...textured and barrel-chested, with a full head of dramatically dark, pomaded hair, Klein doesn't share his client's flair for fashion. He prefers sneakers and sweatshirts to paisleys and Nehru jackets. But while Klein doesn't look like the most powerful and controversial player in the music business, he is in fact a ruthless and brilliant businessman given to bold talk, bolder strategies, and a confrontational style that ranges from brusque to insulting. Klein has been making regular forays to London, selling himself to producers and artists, and battling the business practices of record companies, music publishers, and booking agents when no one else would. He is more interested in results than rules. Don't talk to me about ethics, Klein says dismissively. Every man makes his own. It's like a war. You choose your side early, and from then on, you're being shot at. The man you beat is likely to call you unethical. So what? He is an obsessive chess master who keeps opponents on the back foot with a painstakingly constructed game of seemingly endless litigation, negotiation, and obfuscation. To the hidebound, class-conscious record executives and press of 1960s Britain, he embodies every cliché of ill-breeding and grotesquerie that can be conjured by the phrase New York Jew, and they detest him. Yet what most upsets the establishment is that he is right. For more than a decade, Klein has been arguing, vociferously and alone, that rock and pop artists are grossly underpaid, that the industry infantilizes them in order to cheat them. Though a brawler by temperament, he is an accountant by training, a gimlet-eyed skeptic decoding the record industry's rules and ledgers and rewriting them in the artist's favor. Because of Klein, his clients, most notably Sam Cooke and the Rolling Stones, have taken once unthinkable giant steps reaping bonanzas and gaining creative control over their work and careers. In 1965, when the Beatles were still receiving a royalty of a penny a record, split four ways, Klein negotiated record deals for the Stones worth over two and a half million dollars. This did not escape the notice of either Lennon or his partner Paul McCartney. Lennon is a big fan of Klein but McCartney doesn't like him. He finds Klein abrasive, and he knows that Klein demands an outsized share and habitually finds creative ways to cut himself a piece of an artist's holdings and career. John, otherwise suspicious of businessmen, has a special bond with the -the up-from-the-streets Klein. He loves that he comes on like gangbusters. Alan doesn't confine himself to beating up adversaries. An advisor in a business lousy with professional handholders and toadies, he's the pistol-packing, face-slapping tough guy from an old movie. Lennon is ready to give Klein carte blanche. Allen will be the answer, the bulwark and savior, the gunslinger they so desperately need. George Harrison and Ringo Starr agree, and in the spring of 1969, Allen Klein becomes the Beatles' business manager. For Klein, who has yearned, strategized, and schemed for years to manage the Beatles, it's more than sweet. It's validation. 
Like everyone else in the world, Klein wants to be a Beatle, just not for the same reasons. Now he is the undisputed master of the music business, managing the affairs of the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. He may be more powerful and transformative than anyone before or after him in the music industry. For him, money alone has never been proof of that. He likes it, wants it, and spends it lustily, but doesn't use it to keep score. It is the work, the groundbreaking deals that only he can conjure, that tells the tale. He certainly has his work cut out for him now. The Beatles' affairs are a mess, an unwieldy, seaweed-slippery anchor chain that defies movement, let alone unwinding. Management contracts, publishing, and record...